what I want to do today is, is I don't really want to scare you. I guess I kind of do. I don't, know if, I don't know where I want to land today, to be honest with you. But I, I do want to talk about something that, that I'm really excited to talk about. And I've spent more hours studying this topic uh, that we're going to be talking about today than I have probably any other topic. It's been one of the most difficult sermons uh, for me to write. I've been a pastor for almost nine years, and this one has been pretty challenging for me to write, to be honest with you. And uh, so we're jumping into probably one of the scariest, but definitely the most confusing and difficult book of the Bible to understand, the book of Revelation. Now, I was, I was only going to do one week on this. If you heard last week, I said we were going to cover the entire book this week. I lied, so forgive me. Um, I, uh, as I was studying for it, I came to the conclusion there's like absolutely no way we're going to cover all 22 chapters today. It's just way too much in it. And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of take the book of Revelations in chunks. So today, we're doing verses 1 uh, through, I'm um, sorry, chapters 1 uh, through 11. And then next week, we're going to do uh, 22, I'm sorry, 4 to 22. Now, uh, and then the week after that, so not next week, the week after that, we're going to study hell. I just figured, well, might as well just t- jump in all of the terrifying topics together and get, get, it, get it out of our system. And so uh, the reason, the reason kind of why I'm, I'm passionate about this and the reason why I think it's so important that, that really every living person gets a handle kind of on, on the, this book, but specifically, uh, if you're a follower of Christ, the book of Revelation, the last book of, of Scripture, um, is because uh, I think it has the ability to change the way you live and the way that you view uh, your time and your talent and your treasures and things along those lines. And I've never met like a Christian that doesn't really care about kind of the, the prophecies contained in this book, right? I haven't really met many Christians who are like, I don't really care about the book of Revelation. Like, ah, the world's going to end, but like, who cares? You know, like, I just haven't met many people that are like that. They, they want to know kind of what are the prophecies contained in this book. But if we've got to be honest, you open it up and it's kind of intimidating and it's definitely confusing. And so people kind of start reading it and then they, they put it down because they're like, what on earth? There's like a dragon with like three heads flying around. Like, what is going on, right? And so it's kind of confusing. And so over the next kind of few weeks, two weeks to be exact, I, I want to kind of pick apart the book, book kind of chapter by chapter. And so we're actually going to go in every single chapter um, uh, over the next two weeks. And it's going to be a lot. Um, like I said, it was one of the difficult sermons for me to write. And uh, my hope, my prayer is that by the end of uh, the next two weeks, is uh, that you would have more confidence in kind of understanding, uh, more confidence in reading it, and a deeper understanding of the eschatological significance, that's just a big term that means the end times, uh, of the book and what it really means for you and for me. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to the very last book of the Bible called Revelation. And if not, the verses will be up on the screens um, uh, for us. So we're going to start in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1. Right out of the gate, we're starting with it. It says this, The Revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, we have to understand that's what this book is about. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation simply means to, to un- unveil or to, um, yeah, to unveil, to, to reveal to people, right? Now, I'm like super into cars, and uh, I love like, like whether it was like Bugatti a few weeks ago was like showing a new car, it's like a $9 million one-off car that they were doing, right? And I love like the way that they do this, right? It's under the lights, there's like music, like techno music, right? And then like these people like pull the thing off and everyone's like, oh, you know, everyone like just goes, wow, right? Because they've spent all this money, this engineering into like this thing, the unveiling of this car. They can kind of see the, um, call it the, the finished product of, of all these people's hard work. And that's kind of what the book of Revelation is, is about. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, and, and that is why this book is so important. Because without it, if you don't understand the 66th book of our, of our Bible, if you don't understand it, you're going to have a, a belittled, a, a small view of who Jesus Christ really is. If you don't read this book and have a good grasp of it, you're not going to um, have the full theology um, that God really wants you and I to have. And so we're going to spend tonight and next week kind of journeying uh, through the book. So let's continue in verse 1. Uh, it says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servants, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads about the words of prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. All right, so we got this book from John, uh, the Apostle John, and uh, he gets a vision, and here's these words from an angel. And then he just starts to kind of beginning to write down what, what this angel is kind of telling him and what he's seeing and, and what he's hearing. In verse 9, it says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus. I'm not even going to try to say those. Uh, We'll just end in Laodicea because I want to botch them. Now, uh, here's what we need to understand. So this is like kind of right after the Roman government has begun to kill all of Jesus' disciples, right? So Jesus' homies, uh, we know that Judas, like, you know, he hangs himself because he was sketchy. But what ends up happening for the other ones is they start dying terrible deaths. We talked about this, right? So Peter gets hung upside down. Um, people's heads get, you know, cut off. They're dipped in wax and like lit on fire. Um, what else? Uh, they have horses strapped to their limbs and they run in all four different directions. I mean, the, the followers of Christ in the first century died horrifically other than John. He's the only disciple not to get martyred. Rather, so the Roman government was killing all, all of Jesus' disciples because they didn't want uh, this movement to be kind of spread throughout the world and definitely through Rome, right? And so they start killing all, all, all the disciples. But they decide to banish John to this island called Patmos. They've actually been to Patmos. It's a, an island in, in, um, in Greece, and it's a beautiful place. It wouldn't be that bad of a place to be banished to, to be honest with you. It's beautiful. It's like Santorini. And so what, is, what ends up kind of happening when he's here, he, like he gets these visions and things along those lines, and he just kind of begins to write down some of the things that, that, that he's hearing. And specifically, he writes letters to these seven churches that, that I couldn't pronounce. These seven churches, basically, um, is where he begins kind of his, his writing. Now, these are actual churches. These, these churches existed during this time. I've actually been to, to one of the churches we're going to talk about in a second. We're going to only talk about one of the seven today. And um, they're actual churches, right? It'd be like if I was writing a letter to, like, a church in, like, Anaheim or L.A. or something along those lines, right? Then John, he, um, in this, he turns around. He decides he's going to turn around. He's like, who's talking to me? Right, like, like, who's giving me these visions? Who's giving me, like, like this wisdom and stuff to write down? So he turns around, and here's what it says um, in uh, verse 17. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last. So whatever happens, John turns around, and whatever he sees is so awesome. It's, it's so mighty that it, like, it scares him to death. He, like, just falls down to the ground. And so, well, who is that? Like, like who, who could be talking to him? What would scare him that much? Well, we actually get more context in verse 18. He says this, I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So what does that sound like? Well, we can kind of deduce and understand that this, this, this person that's giving John this revelation is Jesus. It, it, it is Jesus Christ that's the one speaking. And in verse 19, he says this, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Now, this is super important because verse 19 gives us kind of like the, the, the outline of really what all of the book is going to be about, right? It gives us a deep understanding, a, a contextual understanding of what the entire book of Revelation is really about. He says, write on a scroll what you've seen. Well, you've seen a vision of Christ, so start writing that down. Chapter 1 is, is that. And then he says, write down what, is, uh, what you've seen, then write down what is now. And so in chapters 2 and 3, um, he starts to kind of write to the churches, the seven churches we talked about, kind of letters pertaining to things that are going on in their lives. And tonight we'll talk about one. And then finally, he says, write down what will take place. And that's what chapters 4 to 22 are all about, and, and I'm really excited to talk about those um, tonight. Uh, that's kind of what the future, so it's the, 
the term eschatology. It's all about what, what's going to happen in the future, the end times. How is the world going to end and things along those lines? And so let's jump into Revelation chapter 2, and we'll talk about the first church. It says, the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, I, I guess there's a few things I guess I would want us to understand. Number one, uh, this is like an actual church. I've been to this church. And um, he basically says, um, there, there's one Christian church here, and I want you to write a letter to this one Christian church. Now, he says, I want you, and it says it to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And you're like, what on earth? Like, like there's an angel that's like, like leading worship, you know, it's like playing the harp. I mean, like, what, is it, what, do you, what does it look like that they're like, you're trying to give a letter to an angel? I don't know entirely sure what's, what's going on here. Well, well, the word angel can actually mean a few things here. Um, it can actually mean like an angelic being, but rather in this context, it means a messenger, right? So basically how we could interpret this is the messenger or the pastor there in Ephesus, um, the one who speaks on behalf of God, um, God wants you uh, to tell your church some stuff about what's on his heart basically, right? And so pastor can kind of be interchanged with, um, with angel here. It continues in verse two, it says this. It says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So Jesus says, hey, listen, you guys were great back in the day. I mean, in fact, like, you're still doing good things. You're still caring maybe for the poor in some sense of the way. In fact, you even have, like, good theology in some sense of the way. You know your scripture, but something, so I have something against you. I, there's some like tension between you and me, and what it is is that you've lost your love for me, right? and not just that. You've lost your love for people. Like, you remember like when you used to love me? Do you remember like when you like had that relationship, that overwhelming presence of me in your life? You, you've lost that. Why? Go back to where you last were, to where I last called you to regain that, to re-get that, that connection that, that, we, that we once had, and it's not just that. He actually begins to say, uh, well, I'll hold off on that. Let me say this. I'm sure you've met Christians like this before, right? They've been Christians for a really long time, and you would think these would be pretty loving, caring people. But what ends up happening, if for some reason, the longer that some people become Christian, the more nasty in some sense of the way they've become. In fact, some of the meanest and vindictive type of people are people that go to this church, right? And I don't know how that happens and what that is, but that's basically what Jesus is saying to this church. He's saying, you're supposed to be like me. You're supposed to love me. You're supposed to love my people, but you're doing the opposite. But why is that? And so chapters two and three are kind of all about that. He begins to write these letters, right, to churches just like this. And so we'll, we'll move towards chapter four um, and starts to deal with things of the future. Now, before we quickly just jump into chapter four, let me give you a little bit of context to understand uh, a few things. A lot of people and theologians and people that study the Bible and things like that actually think that the rapture, and that's a time where God's going to have all believers immediately vanish from this earth. Right, the Bible says in the blink of an eye that all followers of Christ will just vanish and will not experience a physical death and immediately be in heaven. Right, if you've ever seen the movie like Left Behind, it, it could potentially be something like that. I have no idea, but potentially it could be something exactly um, like that. Now, a lot of people say um, that, that, that Christians aren't going to be here during that time um, because all of kind of the stuff that's going on, uh, the church isn't mentioned from chapter 4 onward at all. So people say, well, it would make sense then that all the Christians aren't here anymore, right? Because if, if Christians in the church isn't mentioned at all for the next uh, chapters 4 to 22, if they're not mentioned at all, then it would make sense in some sense of the way, right, to say that maybe the church is gone by that time. And also, chapter 4 begins to kind of talk about heaven. So listen to what John says in verse 1. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first, what? And the voice I had first heard speak to me like a trumpet. said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this, maybe after the church age and things along those lines. 
At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Now there's a lot we could talk here, but, but we're just going to skip over this chapter, because chapter 5 and 6 is where it really starts getting weird. Right? So chapter 4, here's what I want you guys to know. God gives, like, John, like, a revelation. He lets him see a glimpse of what heaven is like. And what he sees is, like, God's throne and angels, you know, flying around his throne. And next week we'll talk about what these angels kind of look like and how they're on fire and they're screaming, holy, holy, holy. I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty intense scene, right? And so he's kind of, like, beginning in chapter 4, gives some description of what heaven may potentially look like in God's throne room and things like that. But all all you guys need to know about chapter 4 is that John gets a vision of heaven. So let's move to chapter 5. Revelation 5 1 says this. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat at the throne a scroll with writing on it on both sides, sealed with seven seals. So, so John sees God actually holding a, a scroll, and in the scroll there were seven seals. Now I want you to imagine with me, I don't have seven pieces of paper, but imagine that I had seven pieces of paper in front of me, and all of them were rolled up like, like this, right? Now, every single individual scroll um, was basically, had like a, like a wax impression on it, right? And, and so there were seven different scrolls here that, that's kind of being prophesied about in the book of Revelation. Now, here's what's interesting. On an official Roman document back from this time, they would seal a documents with a, with a wax and an insignia ring. And what that meant was the only people that could open that, the only people that were, call it, worthy or had access or authority to open these documents were the people that had the matching ring right? Because they would have to place it in it. And if it didn't fit, then they couldn't open it. In fact, there also was a law that if you were to open an official Roman document without the proper uh, ring, um, you would be crucified, right? So there was only a few people that could open official documents because they needed to have the appropriate ring. So in, in verse two, he says this, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scrolls or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So like John is weeping here. It says, Then one of the elders said to him, Do not weep. See, the lion and the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So let's get the picture here. Um, God is holding the scroll with, with seven seals, and basically everyone, all the angelic realm and people of earth, are like earnestly hoping that somebody can open the, the, this scroll. In fact, they're weeping that nobody can because it unlocks the mystery of what the end of the world is going to look like, right? But then eventually, uh, the elders come to him and say that there is one. There's one who is, who's, who is worthy to open up these scrolls and tell us what's contained in, in these scrolls. And so in uh, chapter 6, Jesus opens up the scrolls and begins to tell us what is the end of the world going to look like. And here's where it takes off. Here's where it gets kind of pretty intense. In verse 1, it says this. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, right about here, right, is where people, like, normally, like, open their Bibles, they get to Revelation, they start reading, and they close it, thinking that John, like, ate a weird mushroom, right? They're like, what on earth is this dude talking about? Like, I am, I am so confused, right? What, what is he talking about? Well, let's first answer the question, who's the writer, right? So, we can see that whoever this, this guy on the horse is, that he's obviously in some type of seat of, of power. He's in some type of position of power, right, because he's wearing a crown. And crowns obviously show some type of status or wealth or authority or something along those lines, right? The second thing that sticks out to me that I wanted to point out to you is that he also has a bow with no arrows. So what can we really learn or what can we really kind of begin to understand from that? Well, it means that whoever this individual is isn't going to rule by war. Rather, he's going to usher in a time of peace. He's going to uh, rule by bringing bringing peace. 
So, so how, how do we know this? Right? How do we get to this, right? Well, thousand, about, a, about a thousand years before the book of Revelation was written, um, in Daniel uh, chapter 9, he actually begins to kind of talk about a very similar thing. Now, Daniel was given a little bit of a revelation of what the end of the world was going to look like, but nothing like John was given, right? So what ends up happening is Daniel begins to write something that an angel is telling him, and here's what he says in Daniel 9, uh, 27. He says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end, until the end of time, the end of the world. That is decreed, yeah, is poured out on him. So let's go way back to the beginning of this verse, right? It, it seems like whoever this is, they're going to come alongside and, and they're going to make some type of covenant, some type of promise with, with the people of the world and they're going to usher in a time of peace that is unequaled before. Yet in the middle, in about three and a half years, in the middle of this era of peace, something's going to happen. It says that he's going to uh, put an end to sacrifices and offerings. You're like, what on earth does that even mean? Like, you, you may not even be tracking with me. Well, we have to ask a question. Where do sacrifices take place? They take place in the temple in Jerusalem. But if you know anything about history or about Israel today, you'll know that the Jews in Jerusalem, they don't have actually a temple. It was, it was torn down. All that's there now is something called the Dome of the Rock. And the Jews, right, they've, they've waited, they've prayed for a temple to be rebuilt on their holy ground. But the problem is the people that, that are, that are uh, the primary authority over this, this place right now is the Muslims. And they're not going to allow a Jewish, Jewish people to come in and build a temple on what they think is their holy land, right? And so there's this kind of tension that's existed for thousands of years at this exact place. Now, what appears really to happen is someone is going to come along at some point in our future, maybe happening today, I have no idea, that's going to bring peace to the Middle East. Now, people have tried that in the past, like Clinton tried that in the 90s. It didn't work, obviously. Uh, we went to war right after that. Um, but it, it, so whoever this individual is, he's going to try to bring peace, and it's actually going to work. And what's even maybe more miraculous is he's going to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple and these two, the, 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 the Jews and the Muslims, are going to coincide together at, at this place. That's never happened before, right? And, and so this sounds miraculous, right? This sounds like good news. It sounds like this guy must be incredible, but it actually isn't. Because three and a half years into this, into this peace, into this era, what's going to happen is, is uh, he's going to put an end to, this, to sacrifices. And then he's going to put a statue in the temple, which it says in Daniel, which will represent the kingdom of the Antichrist. And we're going to talk all about the Antichrist next week. But the point is that the whole world, and this is what Revelation says, the whole world is going to look to this person, is going to follow whoever this, this individual is because he brought peace to the Middle East. Not, no one else in human history has been able to do that. So people are going to think, this is like, this guy is an incredible leader, right? He must be a man of God if this is what he can do. We just have to keep reading. And in verse 3 it says this. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. So about three and a half years into this, uh, the next thing that happens for the next three and a half years uh, is a war like this world has never seen. And we're going to talk a little about what this war is going to look like. But it, more people will die in a handful of a few months that have died in all wars uh, that have ever existed. This will be, the Bible says that, that the streets will run with blood. The oceans will be thick with blood. I mean, this is a type of death that, that, that we can't even fathom yet. Uh, nuclear bombs don't create these. I mean, this is a type of death that we can't even, even wrap our minds around yet. And so it says this in, in verse 5. It says, When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I, I looked, and there before me was a black horse, its rider holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, 
two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil or the wine. You're like, what on earth is John saying, right? Well, in this vision, John, John sees a black horse, and the rider is holding scales to weigh things. And for some reason, th- this guy, he's just screaming about money and about food. And so what basically this, this is communicating to us, because we don't understand what six pounds of barley is and all this other stuff, is he's basically saying there's going to come a day in our future at some point where you will work a whole day and not even be able to feed yourself with the money you've made that day. Right? So basically, these are famine-like conditions. Right? The, the entire world will be in a famine where millions of people are dying a day. And, and then uh, it begins in peace, then there's some type of war, and then obviously what, what happens after wars is, is normally worldwide famines, Right? And so it continues in in verse 7 and 8, it says this. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, whose rider was named Death, and Hades was falling close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, could be biological, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the fourth thing that he sees happen is this this pale horse, and then the rider's name is, is Death. And, and th- th- this, this plague, this war, whatever it is, is given the authority by God to kill one-fourth of the population that exists on earth. Now, if that happened today, it would be about close to about just shy of two billion people dying in, the, in, in just a few months, right? And so, moving forward, uh, he, he says this in 9 and 10. He says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They cried out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So he opens the the fifth seal, and he actually gets a glimpse into heaven to the the people that have died for following Christ during during this era because the Antichrist is going to be killing Christians. Uh, Most theologians think it's going to be like a holocaust for Christians. Uh, That's basically what the Antichrist is going to usher in during this time. Right? And so what's happening at this moment is John hears these Christians saying, God, when are you going to avenge uh, our death? Like, your fa- like the, the world, the Antichrist is doing these things, these horrific things to the people that you say are in your family. When are you going to avenge our, our death? And so that brings us to the sixth seal, which is more terrifying than anything that has happened before. I just want to maybe click pause. When I was reading this, I was just imagining what the world was going to look like. Can you imagine an all-powerful? We've talked about this in week one and two of this series. We use the word omniscient and omnipotent. Omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He has no limitations upon his strength. The only thing that limits him is his imagination, and his imagination is infinite in nature, right? So this being, this all-powerful being is pouring down his wrath onto all of creation, it's going to be a sight that is horrific, and, and it begins to talk about it in verse 12. He says, I watched as the sixth opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as fig dropped from a fig tree when shaken by strong winds. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now, this is where it gets, like, terrifying, right? I mean, not that the other stuff was like a walk in the park or like a day on the beach, right? It's it's obviously horrific stuff, right? But John is, like, giving us image. And you got to understand, right? So John lived 2,000 years ago, right? So, like, how do you explain, like, an airplane when all you've ever seen is, like, a horse? 
How do you explain a nuclear bomb when all you've ever seen is a bonfire, right? So he's doing his best, right, to explain the generations uh, that, are, that are going to come, what the end of the world is going to look like, right? So yeah, he uses a lot of like, like, like metaphoric and, 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 and symmetry and things along those lines because he doesn't know what, it, what, a, what a nuke looks like. He's never seen a meteor collide into the earth or things along those lines. So he's kind of giving us kind of some pretty interesting um, pictures and things along those lines. So he begins to tell a story, right? Where meteors are colliding into the earth and earthquakes are leveling cities and the sun turns black and the moon turns red and all the inhabitants of earth, and this is the part that's like terrifying, all of the inhabitants of earth are praying they are praying, they are hoping that the rocks, that the buildings that, that, are, that are collapsing would collapse on them so they don't have to experience the wrath of God. And so this kind of brings us all to chapter 7. And chapter 7 is actually a really interesting book because he just kind of describes uh, in the first uh, part of what we're talking about today kind of what the end times are going to look like in a quick detail. But in chapter 7, he kind of clicks pause and then he goes back in greater detail to explain what this is really going to look like. And so in 7, um, verse 2, he says this, then I saw another angel coming from the east. Having the seal of the living God, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea. Do not harm the land or the sea of the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. So this isn't the mark of the beast, all right? We're talking about that next week. But, but here's something that I do want to, I want to kind of point out. Um, before God begins to really pour, because remember we're going back, before he begins to pour out all of his wrath upon creation and upon people, here's kind of what, what, he, what the angels basically are saying. Before all this destruction, before all of this bloodshed comes, let, let's mark all of the remaining followers of Christ, whoever these people are, uh, uh, with, with a sign so that we know that we're not supposed to harm them because God is protecting them. Now most scholars, not maybe that you need to know this, but most scholars think these are actually Jewish people. Right? And so in the verse right after this, I didn't give it to you, but it's 144,000 people. And a lot of theologians and scholars say that th these are probably Jewish people who during this time of the tribulation are going to give their lives over to Jesus and, and are going to be marked. They're not going to be taken up to heaven like those that have followed Christ post all, or pre all of this, but rather they're going to have to endure all of this. Um, and there's going to be some pretty intense stuff we'll, we'll see in a moment. Um, and there's going to be some type of mark on them. We don't know exactly what that looks like. Now, in verse 8, it says this. Or in chapter 8. He says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So he opens up the seventh seal. And everything, everything immediately goes silent for about 30 minutes. Now up until this point, right, where heaven is, is hustling and bustling. Right? I don't know what that exactly means, but there's a lot of things going on. But when, when, when Christ opens up this last, the seventh seal, it is so terrifying, it causes silence in heaven for 30 minutes. In verse 2, we begin with some context of what it looks like. It says, they saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So the seventh seal, right, it holds uh, uh, seven angels, and each one of these angels, they hold seven, or one trumpet each. Now, I want you to look at, at verse seven with me. It says this. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came uh, hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So, so here we have the first angel, right? He, he blows his trumpet, whatever his trumpet is. Maybe it's a real trumpet. I don't know what it is. But what we do know is that fire rains down from the sky, burning 33% of everything on earth, right? Now, again, this could be nuclear warfare. I have no idea. But it's going to be up to something so catastrophic that 33% of our world, in a, in a blink of an eye, is going to be scorched. Verse 8, it says this. The second angel sounded his trumpet. Something like a huge mountain and all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. 
So John says something, that he sees something like a mountain, right? This huge mountain on fire or whatever it is, and it falls into a huge part of, of, our, of, of the ocean, right? It could be the Pacific Ocean or whatever it is. And whatever, whatever happens, it causes almost all of the animals in the oceans of our world to die, die quickly, so much that the oceans of our world immediately run thick with blood. And in verse 10 and 11, it says this. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from sky on the third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. So this third angel, right, he blows his trumpet, and what ends up happening, what this causes, is all of the water on planet Earth to immediately become poisonous in some sense of the way, right? So it's killing people left and right, whatever's in this water. It could be some biological thing, I have no idea. In verse 12 it says this, The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. So something catastrophic is happening here, right? Something cosmological, something that could be of no human origin, right? We can't black out the night sky, right? So something is happening as God is, is pouring out his wrath on mankind, on, on the people that are still here, and on all creation. That The sky literally blacks out. There is no more stars. You can't even see something catastrophic is happening to this world. Then in verse 13, it says this, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And so the the fourth trumpet, basically their, their eagle comes and he says, listen, like you thought everything else was pretty intense. You haven't seen anything yet. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth for what is about to come. And then it says that, that in, in a, well, let's jump into verse 9, and then we'll talk about it. It says, uh, the fifth angel uh, sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. What, what, is, the, what, what is the abyss, right? Well, what, what John is talking about here, the, the abyss is like this dungeon in the depths of hell, where the worst demons are, these worst, the worst demonic creatures are bounded up by God, because they'd cause too much heartache, too much catastrophe if they were unleashed. So God bounds them. God doesn't allow these people or these these demons or whatever it is to to, to do what demons do, right? Now, what ends up happening is it says that uh, this star is given the key to open it. Now, it's obviously not like a real star, right? Because stars don't have keys. They don't like, you know, they don't like work like that, right? And so what we can learn from the term star here is is what it means is an angelic being, because that's what sometimes it can mean in scripture. And so this this angel, and by the way, this isn't like God's angel. These are fallen angels. They're demonic beings, what, what, all the ones that we're talking about um, in this book. And, and the result of this is actually found in verse 6. It says this, During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Here's what this means, that people will try to commit suicide but will be, will be unable to do so. The gun will jam, the pills won't work, the rope will snap. People will try and end their lives. They'll jump off buildings, run in front of buses, but they will not be able to die. God will sustain them and keep them alive for the duration of this. That is terrifying. I mean, we can't even experience... Uh, before this happens, a type of hopelessness that, that, that is being really experienced here in, the, in these verses. Verse 13 and 15, it says this. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It is said that the sixth angel had the trumpet released the four angels who are bound at the great river of the Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
So already, billions and billions of people are already killed. And so at this point, right, whatever this demon, this angel is, these four, they're given more authority to kill a third of the world's population already. Right? And so these angelic beings are, are, are killing people. And, and uh, the Euphrates, so this is going to begin in Asia somewhere. Asia Minor or somewhere along those lines. That's where it's going to begin. And it continues in verse 20. It says this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols they cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Isn't that amazing? Right? Like all, like God, all of this is happening, and people are so arrogant. People are so prideful that, that these people aren't turning to God, even as the world literally is collapsing in on itself. And I read this and I go, they're still not repenting. Like God is ca- causing the, the sun to turn black. The, 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 literally the moon is red, right? There's nuclear bombs going on. I mean, and they're still not turning over to God. They're not repenting of their sin. They're not asking for Jesus. None of those things. But, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, how crazy are these people? But the more that I, I thought about this and I was reading more about it, these people are kind of like the exact people who reject God today. Right? They, most people on, in, in this room and your friends and on earth so far, at least in America, have heard the name of Jesus Christ. They have some concept of this idea of sin and things along those lines. And they know that bad things happen. But they would rather pursue their jobs, money, They'd rather pursue an education. None of those things are bad. They'd rather pursue sexual autonomy, being able to do with what they want, than actually a relationship with Christ. So the same people that are depicted in this verse, in chapter, are the same people that are rejecting God today. And in verse 10, it says this, or chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, move to three and four, and it says, he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So this drives me crazy. <laughs> I was like, like trying to like research, like what do you mean? Like, like he was able to write down all that we just talked about and God kept him from writing this down. That is terrifying. It must be so horrific that whatever it is was so bad that God did not want John to actually write it down. I mean, imagine the PTSD that John is experiencing probably at this moment, right? Like, you've seen the, the end of the world, right? The end of time, and all of these crazy things happen, right? And God says, hey, there's a lot of crazy things that have happened, and there's definitely something crazy that's going to happen, but I actually don't want you to write it down. And so that actually brings us to chapter 11, which is the last chapter for what we're doing tonight, what we're going to go through today. In the book of Revelations, uh, chapter 11, verse 3, it says this. And I will appoint two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. What is 1,260 days? Well, in the Hebrew calendar, uh, they have 360 days, right? We have 365. So it's actually three and a half years. At three and a half years kind of into this, um, uh, during the first half of the tribulation, uh, during kind of this time of peace, God is going to have two witnesses, right? He's going to have two people on earth that their primary job is to tell people the truth, right? They are God's messengers sent by God to tell the world about Christ, right? And then in verse 5, it says this, And if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours, devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. So these, uh, they're unique people to say the least, right? <laughs> right? Uh, they're like superheroes. I don't know, but it's crazy, right? Again, right? He's like, dude, are they actually spitting fire? I don't know, right? But like, it's the imagery, right? Now, John is describing what he's seeing, and, and he's basically saying like, it looks like these people are like, like literally fire is coming out of their mouth. Verse 7 and 8 is really interesting. It says this. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that came up from the abyss 
will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. The great city is Jerusalem. So what we know here is that Satan himself has actually given the the power uh, to actually kill these two witnesses. And so in verse 9 and 10, it says this. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. So the, the, these guys, right, whoever these two witnesses are, they, they, they are dead somewhere in a street, and no one is burying them. They're allowing their bodies to decay and rot in the middle um, of the streets, right? And Every person on earth is seeing this, right? So it's obvious that this is happening on television, on the internet. I mean, this could only happen today, right, where every human eye could get to see something, right? And so something's happening, right, it, it, through television, the internet, through Instagram or the new, whatever's going to come out and whenever, right? So every person gets to see this. And people are so happy that these two witnesses have died. They're literally like giving each other cake pops and like Starbucks gift cards. They're giving each other's gifts, right? They're so pumped that these two people have died. And in verse 11, it says this. But after the three and a half years, or three and a half days, uh, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And now people are going, well, <laughs> this is awkward, right? I mean, like, I gotta have my cake pop back, right? Now, like, this is, this is a, a weird kind of predicament we're in right now. We were pumped, and now these people came back to life. In verse 15, it says this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever endeavor. So this is kind of like this climactic moment, right? In in chapters 11, where we learned that that throughout the seven years, there's some pretty intense things happening, right? But uh, the seventh trumpet signs the signaling uh, of Christ's return. Here's where Christ cracks the sky open and and comes back down, right? This is the the moment where time comes to an end. This is the moment where where, where our our world actually, where it ends. And that's where we're actually going to be going next week. And, And so, I don't want you to miss next week, because here's what we're going to be talking about next week. And I know tonight was a lot, and I was like trying to figure out like, dude, how do I go through this book that isn't so informational? But the book, in some sense, has to be informational, right? You have to know kind of this stuff. And so next week, here's kind of what we're going to be doing. We're also going to go through a bunch of chapters, but more maybe importantly, um, and I'm more excited about next week, because it makes more sense to me, um, we're going to be learning about the Antichrist. Like what, I mean, the Bible says some crazy things. We'll learn more next week, but the Bible says that like, that, that, like he's going to be on a public arena in some sense of the way, and his head's going to be blown off. And within the, the, and every person on earth will see this person's head reconfigure back, right? So we need to understand that everyone is worshiping this, this individual, right? And they're going to lead, the, the Antichrist is going to lead people to hell, right? He's ushering with a smile on his face people to hell. We're going to learn about the mark of the beast, right? People have, have been talking about this for a while. Is it 666? What is it? Is it a chip in your arm? I mean, what is the mark of the beast, right? We're going to talk about the one world government, the one world currency that's talked about in, in the book of Revelation. And then finally, we're going to end on heaven, right? So Revelations chapter 21 and chapter 22 is good news, right? Revelations chapter 21, where it talks about that God will wipe the tears from every human being, that he will, he will be Emmanuel, he'll be God with us with nothing uh, restricting uh, his presence in, in our lives and things along those lines. And so don't miss next week. I know tonight was a lot, um, but next week is going to be really impactful. We're going to talk about the beast. We're going to talk about the harlot. We're going to talk about the mark of the beast. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. So be here next week. Um, so let me pray for you guys, and then we'll all have uh, nightmares together. Let's pray. <laughs> God, uh, man, the book of Revelation, I, as I was studying it this week, I probably spent 40 hours, God, researching, learning, God, about what the end of our world is going to look like. And I'll be honest, God, it, it does scare me um, that this world is going to come uh, falling apart, God, as it seems. Father, I thank you, God, that you are saving um, us from that. 
Um, God, that, 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 that you are a God that, that cares about your family. And God, that you will bring us, hopefully, before this happens, uh, into your arms. God, I just I ask, God, that we may have the eyes, God, to, to see uh, the signs of this end time. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen in my life or it's going to happen another 100,000 years. I have no idea, God. But may you give us the wisdom. May you give us the discernment, God, um, to know the things, God, we need to know to know your voice, as Scripture says, so we need not turn to other things, God, but may our hearts, God, be filled with your love. May our minds, God, be filled with your truth. So, Father, we love you. I'm so excited, God, about uh, this series, and God, the people that are here. We love you, and in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.